0: It's not brilliant. It's so good to hear stories of what God is doing in people's lives, and and you know, so often for us, it's our story that um, is the overcoming thing. You know, our story, our testimony. Nobody can take that away from us. Nobody can change that. It's so good to hear of God's goodness. Um, so, do I have the wee clicker? I'm still Um. Great. So we are just on our second week of a series. It's called We Are Worshippers, Praise, Presence and Posture. And this is kind of a, a second part to an introduction on that particular topic. But just before we do that, um, I just want to talk for a couple of minutes, and, and it will relate to what we're talking about today as well, um, You know about what's been going on in our country with changes um, potentially to legislation, particularly around um, abortion. And... Um, you know, I think that, that we should be concerned um, about the way in which the, these laws are proposed, uh, the changes are happening, the mechanisms, bypassing uh, our local government um, and, and stuff like that. And I think we should do something in terms of writing to your MP or House of Lords peers at the minute where um, those legislation uh, documents are sitting currently. We can write to our local MLAs as well, because with not having a functioning government in Stormont, um, there's very little that can be done, so I think we have the opportunity to do that. However, I think as well, we should not necessarily be surprised or concerned that we find ourselves, the church that is, um, increasingly on the margins of society. For a long time, religion has had a strong effect uh, on Northern Ireland and on our political system. Some of that has been good. Some of that hasn't been good. Um, But we find ourselves and our voice increasingly marginalised, and possibly we find ourselves certainly at least feeling like we're in the minority. But that's actually a really good place for us to be. We need to to recognise and see that. Um, Here's a couple of quotes from from Matt Chandler on that. He says that the, the church thrives on the margins. That's why our cultural moment doesn't need to be viewed as depressing, but instead exciting. It's not bad news. It's good news. We're now back in the place where we have always flourished best. Marginalization is a space where we find out where our loves and our allegiances really lie. It's only when our faith is put onto the test, when we find ourselves on the outside, that we really figure out what things are about. And he goes on to say, The church before Christendom was made up of individuals who had a courage that could not be quenched by the fires, nor torn apart by the lions. And those aren't metaphors. It was made up of ordinary people who together unleashed an unstoppable multiplication of churches throughout the known world. That's our history. That's, that's who we are uh, as a church. And so the place we find ourselves in is full of opportunity to live a true form of Jesus-patterned discipleship. It is not that we detach ourselves, but instead we need to develop a place of influence. Where once maybe the church had a place of control. And the world doesn't like that. Nobody likes to be controlled. We must ask ourselves, what does it look like to have a place of influence? And what is that influence going to be? We cannot force society to follow God's ways, but we can show a better way. It's much more than just what we say. I believe that we should speak, and we should speak up particularly on matters like abortion. But we need to consider... For example, how serious we are about our views. Are we willing to go en masse and march up the Stormont, for example, if the law was changed? Or will we just post something on social media? Are we serious enough about this topic that we might protest to the point of breaking the law? Of finding ourselves in court because we're willing to stand up against injustice? And this is not an issue for keyboard warriors. It's something that is very, very costly. We're talking about the lives of unborn children. And and so when the law changed last year in the Republic of Ireland, one of the things that I said at the time was that our response needs to be more than no. How are we supporting expectant mums currently, right now? How are we caring for families and, and um unborn children? When someone doesn't want or can't look after a baby or a child, what is our active response? That's why organisations like Home for Good are so important blossoms and blessings that provide support, equipment and clothing for expectant new mums. What are our systems, our support structures and our projects? What do we urgently need to put in place? as a church, so that there is an alternative. These things are so important. But what we must also realise is that Jesus came to establish his kingdom and he commissioned his disciples to expand that kingdom. We're called to build an ultimate critique to the brokenness of the world, to live from a different place, a different reality, both internally in terms of what's going on in our lives, but externally in how we live in front of a watching world. Protest is important, but it's not enough. What we need to do is to get serious about building an alternative, a God-centred, God-infused reality. Hundreds of years ago, this was done by the monastic movement. Uh, They built an alternative community, but they quite often isolated that community. Eventually, the church came, or the world came to them. But we have been placed in the world. And having been placed in the world, what are we going to do in word and deed? So that we have a transformed, God centered community that is attractive to the world. And um, here's a little quote from Billy Graham. I, I like it, it's a little bit too rhymey for me, but um, we are the Bibles the world is reading, we are the creeds the world is needing, we are the sermons the world is heeding. It's us. We are the story, and we need to be. The story is wonderful here in Colin's story today, but we need more than just words. We need to be active in, in our approach to, to dealing with all sorts of issues that would come up in the world. We have to paint a reality, a superior picture of something good that reflects the heart of God. Um, and and again, um, I don't have it up on the screen, but in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, it says... You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts and, I, and you know what was lovely about Colin 's story is you can see that story written on his heart, the change and transformation that God has brought in him it 's a wonderful witness. so we need to tell a, a better story, uh, and we will do that um, as the church uh, and The thing about it is that our story ultimately is that Jesus is Lord. I think Alan mentioned that already today. And Jesus is Lord was the theme of the early church. It was a response directly to uh, primarily a Roman-based world where Caesar is Lord was a thing that was said in that culture all of the time. And so to say that Jesus is Lord was subversive was something that could get you into difficulty, which is something that people potentially would have lost their lives for. But for us as Christians, Jesus is Lord, is what we believe. It's about worship. It's about declaring who he is with every aspect and everything in our lives. And so I'm going to move across to our topic primarily of worship. But what I think we need to realize as well is that what God is doing amongst us as a people, is calling him to himself. And when we're called to himself, we cannot help but worship. And we cannot help but express our faith and our love in response to who God is and what he is doing. So, um, Brona, by the way, did a fantastic introduction last week. um, And she talked about... um, worshipping in spirit and in truth. And I would really encourage you, if you weren't here last week, because I know people are away, to go back in the podcast and listen to that talk, because it was it was really great. But I'm going to try and do these five things reasonably quickly, okay? Um, I want to talk about how it's about it's about our heart, it's a response to holiness, it has a power to bring revival, it has a cost, and it is transformational. It's not like me to have five points in a sermon, but there you go. You're getting it. So it's about the heart. God is not impressed with words or even actions. He always looks to the heart. God is always looking to the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, as it says. um, Oh, that's where that verse went. Um, But God looks to the heart. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord's always looking to the heart. It's important that we respond from that place. And, and the Bible tells us that Jesus saw people, he understood them, he knew what was in people. Um, and this is what it says in John 2. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew Uh, what was in each person and so God looks to the heart he sees the brokenness he sees the mess he sees the way life is and the way society and culture is Um, and so Jesus responded to the religious people of the day and he said you know I see your deeds but you're like whitewashed tombs you look amazing on on the outside but inside you're full of of dead man's bones and, and so what we need to realize is that, that if we're going to be true worshipers, what's going on in our heart is of ultimate important, importance. Spirit-alive people have the ability to truly worship. Many uh, can do things in God's name, but worship that reaches the ears of heaven comes from the reborn person whose heart and spirit have been resurrected. They're able to worship God because they've realized that he is of ultimate value. And Jesus says this very simply. You probably know this first quite well, Matthew. Where he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal? But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... Your heart will be also. And so this is talking about how we can place our faith and trust in monetary things, but it's an it's a guiding principle in the Bible that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, do we have wholehearted devotion? Are we able to give wholehearted devotion to God? What's really going on in our hearts? And what we need to realize is that the that the heart, the whole heart devotion that God calls us to is one, one battle at a time. That it is a battle that continues all of the time as God uncovers where our hearts have become captive to other things, to other people, to other situations and circumstances. And I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. But we're called to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We're called to follow him completely, to be like Jesus in wholehearted devotion and worship. See, we can say with our lips, Jesus is Lord, but live like he's not. And that, um, you know, we end up in a place of hypocrisy, but... You know, there's always part of us that, that needs challenge. There's always part of us that needs change And God and his grace and mercy. is always calling us more and more towards himself. He's seeking our heart. You see, we need a revelation of God's nature to fo- fully worship him. The more we see of him, the more we want to worship him. The more we want to praise him, the more we want to give of ourselves to him. And actually, what that really looks like is... is our response to seeing God and to seeing his holiness. So worship is always uh, a response to the holiness of God. When we encounter and we see God as he is, we have this revelation of him. And what was once acceptable in our lives is no longer acceptable. What was once okay, what we once we kind of let slide, maybe things that weren't, aren't even necessarily bad in themselves, when we are faced with a holy God things change. And so what I want to do just briefly is look at Isaiah's encounter. I've, I did this I think, last year as well, but I really feel it's the message that God put on my heart for today to look at Isaiah's encounter with God where he um, has a vision of God's throne room. Um, so the interesting thing about this passage is that uh, it comes in a, at, not at the start of Isaiah, not at the start of his ministry, but in, in Isaiah chapter 6. So Isaiah's already functioning. He's already going around as a prophet speaking on behalf of God telling people what's going on he's already speaking in those ways but but something changes when he has a revelation when he has a vision of God in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord high and exalted seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple above him were seraphim each with six wings With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorsteps and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. And who shall go for me? And I said, here I am, send me. In Isaiah's vision, he experiences the manifest presence of God. And what are the angels singing? They're not singing, God, you're amazing. It's fantastic that you created the world. You know, all the, lots of the things that we would find in, in, in songs, and all those things are good. Their encounter is to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. And they're singing that constantly. They, they cannot do anything but respond to the presence of God by declaring his holiness. As much as they could tell about his deeds and his wonders and all the other things that he has done, It's the holiness of God that captivates them. And these angels are able to be in the presence of God. But even in being in the presence of God, they're flying with two wings. They're covering their faces with two wings and they're covering their feet. There's a sense in which they're almost not able to look upon God even at that point. Even though they are without sin. They're created to worship and yet they can hardly even look upon God. And then you have Isaiah and he gets thrown in the middle of this. And he doesn't join in with the angels. Because he he has seen the glory of God and he just thinks he's going to die. He thinks he's going to die because he has seen the holiness of God. And could it be that we need to get closer to that experience? that Isaiah had, that in seeing who God really is, we realize it's only because of the blood of Jesus that we're worthy to come into his presence. The holy God, he's completely pure in all of his aspects. His holiness is what defines him. That we would declare his praise and his worship. We see this echoed um in, at the end of uh, the Bible in Revelation, in Revelation 4, um, where John has a vision of heaven and he says, uh, and I'm just cutting this reasonably short, but each of, our fo- of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, under its wings, day and night. Um, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You're worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And so... We see that, again, this encounter of the holiness of God causes um, angels to worship. But in this particular passage, most scholars reckon that the 24 elders represent the church, um, the church throughout time, Uh, that the, the crowns that they're throwing down at the feet of God are the crowns of righteousness that they have received, that have actually been bestowed upon them by God. Um, I don't have the scripture, but in in 2 Timothy 4, Paul talks about this, where he says, Now uh, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And so having received honor from God, these people, or the church, takes the honour that has been given to them and throws it at the feet of Jesus. It's like, I've lived my entire life for you, God, and you've blessed me for that, but all I can do in return is to lay down my crown before you, to give back worship to you. What you have done in my life, I give it back again. You're a holy, holy God. I want to read you a little quote from um, a book, which is fantastic. It's on um, the pursuit of the pursuit of the holy God, or the pursuit of the holy, by Simon Ponsonby. Uh, and it's funny because he said that uh, all these books are really popular, except uh, this one, um, because holiness is maybe a topic that uh, we find hard. But this is what he says: God's holiness makes us aware that we are all sinners. Because God's holiness makes us aware that he is righteous and that justice will be done. Because God's holiness is big enough to lift our eyes and hearts beyond our immediate pain and problems. To a more perfect vision of reality. We know that one day God's holiness will put all things right. And so our response to the mess and the brokenness of the world is to see the holy just and right God to orientate our lives and our thoughts around him and his goodness. And when we do that, when the church does that, what we need to realize is that that worship has the power to bring revival. This is a, a picture, and I put this up for a couple of different reasons. One of them being that the last revival in Ireland was so long ago that we don't really have any photographs of it. You know, we have kind of like sketches and drawings and, and things to try and depict it because it's in 1859. Some people think we're overdue, a revival. But revival comes when God's people turn to him. And we will know that we are in the middle of revival when we sense a were at a deeper level of the holiness of God. Our response will not be hype, will not necessarily be social media promotion or detailed sermons into the theology of what's going on. We will be too busy on our faces and on our knees before a holy God. Here's a few quotes about revival because we talk about it sometimes but we don't necessarily even know what it means. But J.I. Packer says, revival is a visitation of God, which brings to life Christians who have been sleeping and restores a deep sense of God's near presence and holiness. Thence springs a vivid sense of sin and a profound exercise of heart in repentance, praise and love with an evangelistic overflow. And so if we're living for revival, that's what we're living for. We're not living for the hype, we're living for an encounter, a divine encounter of the presence of God. But what we need to realise is that if that happens and when that happens, God's holiness will rest upon us in a way that will cause us pain. That will bring about change and transformation, but it will lead to praise and love and evangelistic overflow, which is where we want to be. Uh, And this is uh, one of the great kind of revivalists, Charles Finney, an American, says, if the presence of God is in the church, the church will draw the world in. If the presence of God is not in the church, the world will draw the church out. I think that's a profound statement for these days. If the presence of God is here, people will want that. People will want to see what's going on. It will be our greatest, one of our greatest responses, one of our, our great um, apologetics, really, to the world is the presence of God. But we find ourselves at times pulled by the world, don't we? Because um, we, we are so fickle in, in our own hearts. Worship has a cost. Ultimately, there must be blood. For us to enter into the presence of God. In the Old Testament, with the likes of Isaiah, that was a sacrificial system. In the New Testament, because of the blood of Jesus, we can come into the presence of God. And so worship at times has a sobering thought or experience to it. But it leads us, when we see Jesus and when we sang about Jesus today and what he has done on the cross, it leads us again to worship A lifestyle of glorifying God. We gaze upon his holiness. We get to do that and not die because of what Jesus has done. And it should only be reasonable that worship at times costs us something. It costs me something. It costs you something. Because it's about laying down of self. To say that God is keen and Lord and worthy of praise and glory and honor, we have to say that something or someone isn't. We have very often to turn away from things in order to turn to God. You know, people who worship consumerism, for example, which is one of the great gods of our day, if you want to read about it more, um, and I recommend this book all the time, but Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller, um, It's fantastic on that subject. Whatever has our heart, we will invest in with our time, our energy, our money. Always wanting and having to have the latest and greatest, which is what consumerism is all about. It's quite often what a lot of our economic growth and uh, our society is based on, that we place our worth and our value, and we give worship time and attention to these false idols in our lives, that we ascribe greatness to them. Instead of to God. And so we find ourselves caught up in this. In the treadmill of giving to other things. In our lives. For example. I'm not going to look at anybody when I say this. Okay. But if someone was to worship sport. Such as football. They might wear the outfits. Watch the matches. Attend worship services in stadiums. Spend their time, energy, emotion and money. And tie up all those things in supporting their team. Imagine the energy of a devoted football fanatic diverted towards the worthy worship of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Imagine what that might look like. Don't be getting too worried if you are really into sport or anything. Um, Because what we find, I think Brona touched on it last week too, is that our devotion to things, very often good things in themselves, um, can go a little bit wrong. Uh, and actually, I have a quote, when I've scribbled it down on one of these pages. Here we go. Um, it's what Tim Keller says. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God especially the very best things. And so when we encounter God in worship, he reorientates and he shifts our hearts and he moves us away from things that have caught too much of our hearts and he moves us towards himself. And he brings back into balance the things that have got slightly out of shift. And so we can find that you know, at times when we, when we worship God and when we, f- we see him more clearly, that we move away from certain things and a- towards other things. We maybe move away from our obsession with, with Netflix. We maybe move away from our obsession with things and with stuff. I can't tell you where your heart has gone astray, but for all of us, it probably has. It probably is right now, Slightly. And God is calling us towards himself. But the spirit can tell you. So it can be good things that you have placed false hope in. It can be bad things too. It's amazing that we we give worship, which is time, attention, effort, energy to, to bad things as well, like fear. Fear can actually come in and become an idol. It can get in the place of us worshipping God with our whole lives because we give more attention to our fears than we do to God Himself. Anxiety, busyness, people, popularity, lots of things take our place. And so, this is about the heart. And so what I would encourage us to do as we journey through on this topic of worship is to ask God where our hearts are at when it comes to things that we invest in. When we invest investing our time, our energy, our reputation, our popularity, our allegiance to a team, to a national identity, to a cause particularly at this time of the year, we need to realise that our allegiances can be challenged, that we might have an overbearing sense of national identity, which must find its true and rightful place and balance at the feet of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. All of these things can become ways in which we live a life of worship, that we honour and glorify God with our time, and with our energy, and with our money, And with what we do and what we pour our creativity into, that all of these things can end up being used to glorify God. And we all know that we need to change. And so my last point is that worship itself is transformational. So it's fair to say that we need to get our hearts right before God to worship. But what's also fair to say is that it's in the very act of worship that we get our hearts right. Uh, And I know I've been in this place of kind of going, I I feel like I'm just so far away from God, and I don't even really know if I can worship God because my heart's not right. But I know if I don't worship God, my heart will never be right anyway. And so there's this amazing dynamic that happens that, that when we worship God and when we see him, even though our hearts aren't right, it's in his presence that change and transformation comes. Might have this verse on the screen, let's see. No. Second Corinthians three, sixteen to eighteen says, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate or reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so in a very act of worship itself, we are changed, we are transformed, we experience and we see God, and our hearts are changed, our inner life is transformed. And that inner transformation looks like something as we live out our lives. It looks like us orientating our very beings around giving glory and honor and praise and worship to God. And maybe the things that once took our heart That once we find hard to give up, that once we invested so much in, these things, they don't have the same hold over us because we see something more of God. The more we become like Jesus, the more we'll find ourselves and our lives and our loves reordered. We find our priorities reordered. You see, we enter into a superior reality, the presence and power of a holy God. He enters our consciousness. He breaks into our hearts. He reveals our sin, but also our salvation. The full weight of the divine rescue plan bears down on us from heaven. God in his love and his mercy, he's not content to rescue us and to keep us safe until heaven. He has decided to place the life of heaven into us now. He has decided that we would be his ambassadors in seeing his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, that's our declaration to a broken and hurting world. It's our declaration to ourselves. It's our declaration to each other. But when we look at the mess out in our society, what we say is, God, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is our dedication, our declaration, our hope, and our song. And we declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let heaven and earth be filled with your glory, that all men might see and know that you are God. We will not shrink back at this time in history, and we will not be silent as people and as a church, but it will actually be with worship and with prayer that these will be our weapons. Because they're stronger than anything else the devil can do in this world. Stronger than anything that he can throw at us is the power of our weapons or our warfare, which are worship and prayer. That to see the holy almighty and to know that his desire is to be involved and he is involved in life and in society and it is him that we carry and that we are ambassadors of his kingdom to see his kingdom come and his will be done and worship will always be the thing that leads us so if the band want to come up just we're going to do one song and then we're going to finish and I'd love for us just to, to allow God to continue to stir in our hearts Where our allegiances have become skewed a little bit, maybe where our hearts have grown cold, where pain or disappointment have come in and have taken away some of that desire for God, it's only in worship as God reveals himself that we are changed and transformed and therefore able to worship him in spirit and in truth. So why don't we stand?